Hi, as always, it's Darren. For any first-time listeners, I head up the account management and customer success teams here at HackJob. This week, I'm joined by Brendan, founder of MasterTalk. Hey, doing, Brendan? Hey, Darren. Very good. You? I'm very, very good. Um, so for anyone that doesn't know of you, would you be able to give us a bit of an intro into your background and who you are? Of course, I'm happy to. So my name is Brendan. I'm the founder of MasterTalk. It's a YouTube channel I started to help the world master the art of public speaking and communication. And how I got started, Darren, was when I was in university, I used to compete in these things called case competitions. So for a lot of the engineers in the room, think of it like hackathons, but for business school or professional sports, but for nerds. So other guys my age were, you know, eating chicken wings and playing college footy or something. I was still eating the same junk food as they were. But instead of watching college games or sports games, I was watching other people present and how they were presenting. So that was my life for three years. And the reason why a lot of people do these competitions is to get jobs at management consulting firms or to get on Wall Street or I guess the London equivalent of Wall Street. So a lot of us end up doing these competitions. So I did that for three years, presented over 500 times, helped dozens of people master communication. And then when I started as a technology consultant at IBM, I kind of asked myself, what can I do to repackage this information to help more people? That's when the idea for the YouTube channel came to be. Nice. And how long has the, the channel been running for? So I've been coaching people for four or five years now, and the YouTube channel started uh, 18 months ago. So obviously, it's, a, it's an interesting background because you've got multifaceted stuff going on at any moment. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your day to day? Like, What's a normal day to day look like for you? Of course. So, so when I was in university, I did a couple of internships at Pricewaterhouse. And then after that, I did a small stint in venture capital where mm -hmm. I helped a lot of technical founders kind of refine what they were doing and how they were communicating their ideas. And then after that at, at IBM, what I do is I mostly serve a lot of my, my clients to navigate a lot of technology implementation. So think SAP, SAP success factors. I'm the one who implements the software. So I work at different industries, banking, telecom, construction, et cetera. Nice, nice. And uh, how much of your time, how would you uh, like to divide your time between the Master Talk stuff and the IBM stuff? I, I think the quick answer is I don't. So I full time on both. So I'm probably like working a lot more than <laughs> most people do. But it's a lot of fun. You know, you gotta you gotta figure out, follow your dreams, and uh, keep working hard, right? So, uh, so you, you do like Master Talk stuff in the evenings and the weekends, or how is that falling? Yeah, you got it. So. So how consulting works for, the, for those who are not familiar with the industry is it's, it's very up in arms. You're not really sure what time you fly out. You don't know really sure where you go. You don't really sure when you end. So sometimes you could be working 10, 15 hours for the week because you're not, you're, not, you're not on a project. And other weeks you could be working 80. Like it's this whole, uh, it's this magical thing. But luckily with the whole situation that's happening now, since none of us are traveling, I'm doing pretty standard, like 50, 60 hours a week, 40 hours a week, things like that. And every other hour outside of that is just master talk. Nice. nice. Um, so obviously you're, you're very confident. You, you, you enjoy the public speaking engagement. I suppose for given what we do at Hacker Job and the sector we work in, we see a lot of people who rather than stereotyping like people that may not necessarily be as confident when public speaking, but still come from like a, a techie background. Can you give us what you consider to be like top three tips for people moving from, let's say, the comfort zone into the, the confidence zone? 
Oh, I love that. That's nice how you phrased that. You should be giving this presentation. <laughs> That's good. So one thing I want, I want to go at to kind of explain this for people before I go into the tips is sure. why do technical SMEs need to understand communication? Because a lot of, you know, engineers or technical founders, they always tell me like, oh, Brendan, well, I know my tech stack. I know everything about my, my product. Why do I need to sell this to people? Sure. So, so the idea is simple. Whether you want to get promoted to a vice president role, a manager role in a tech company, whether you want to be a founder of your own company. The difference between the manager and the person who's just doing the code is that the manager is controlling the strategy and how the teams move. Mm-hmm. So the product guy is doing the product. He's doing, you know, he's coding his stuff, but the, or, or the girl, right? But, or the, but the manager is the person saying, this is the direction we're going in and this is how we're managing that direction. Sure. And that role is a lot more scarce in the market than an entry level position as a programmer. So that's why you want to master it so that you're able to weave in a lot of those technical skills because the chief technical officer of any company is the hardest role to hire for by far because you need that combination of the two. So if that's a role you aspire for, go for it. So here's a couple of things we can talk about. So the first thing that I want to talk about is where does the fear of public speaking come from? For some reason, a lot of us are scared, right? We're not really confident. We don't really understand why, though. Whether you grew up in London, Montreal, New York, Sydney, we don't really know. So let me shed some light here. Let's answer this fundamental question. Where have we given the vast majority of our presentations? And the answer, as you probably can guess, is school. But we don't wake up one morning and say, hey, Darren, you want to like get breakfast and present all day? It doesn't happen. It's not a reality. We're in high school, and three things happen. One, we never get to pick the topic, and the topic is generally something we're not passionate about. Two, the students who are listening to us don't care. Not because they don't care about us. They like us as people. But they're presenting in 10 minutes. So yep. they're, not, they're in their own head. And then you have a teacher who's super stressed, very competent, very well educated, but also doesn't have time to sit you down for 10 minutes and coach you. Sure. And this behavior gets perpetuated in every subject that you do in school. Sciences, math, arts, English, French, over and over and over again, we're taught to believe that public speaking is a chore. It's a responsibility, it's an obligation, it's not supposed to be fun. So even if you're a technical developer at Microsoft or something, or you're trying to get a job in one of those companies, all of the roots begin there. This Mm -hmm. is where you learn how to speak. And that's why most of us are scared. If we see public speaking as an obligation, oh, it's tied to a grade. I got to present at work. I got to do all this stuff. Of course, we're going to be scared. Of course, we're not going to be good at public speaking versus what we're having public, what we're using public speaking for right now to make a difference, to share an idea. So that's kind of giving us a background on public speaking, but is outside of moving it away from an obligation, is there any tips you would give to someone that maybe is, is terrified of public speaking? Of course, I just gave it off because I didn't want to make it a monologue for me to speak yeah. and everything. <laughs> so, so now that we understand where the fear comes, yeah. how do we reverse this? Okay, so this is what I call the repeatable presentation. So the repeatable presentation solves a lot of the issues that we outlined. We're always changing presentations. We don't really know how to practice. We're scared. So how do we fix this? The best speakers in the world present one or two presentations hundreds of times, whereas most speakers... They, you know, it's Wednesday, their boss says, here's a presentation for Friday, they give the presentation, take it, put it in the garbage, move on to the next one. Yep. 
So my advice is find something you're passionate about outside of work. One example I can give to, the, to a technical founder is a hackathon they like to participate in, a project that they like replicated and doing at different hackathons. You want to use that project and then repeat it over and over again and present it over and over again. Same thing if they're a company, they have a side hustle. That's even more interesting because you're always pitching that startup, that company. You want to make a presentation around that so that if you do that 50 times, you're going to be so much better at communication in the last three weeks of your life than you were in the last five years. Right? So that would be one tip. And one easy one we could demonstrate right now is something you could do for like five minutes a day. It's called the random word exercise. So Darren, why don't you just give me a random word? Uh, draw. That's, okay, cool. I was about to say, don't give me a word that's like not UK lingo but, or slang, but yeah, giraffe word. Quickly, giraffe makes sense. <laughs> right, right, of course. So what I have to do with this word Yep. That Darren just gave me is I have to create an introduction out of thin air. So here I go. It's fast. The world is slow, but yet I'm enjoying the Sunday morning. I, I get out of my, my house. I get into the truck, this weird little Jeep, and we start driving. And where are we going? Well, we're going for a safari, obviously. And in that safari, there are different types of animals, lions, that scare the crap out of me. There's cheetahs that are running faster than the speed of light and a very tall giraffe. And as I looked up at that giraffe, I noticed that in the movies that I used to watch, in those National Geographic documentaries, I always noticed that they had a very long neck, but I never realized how long those necks were. And that's exactly what I'm going to share, the mightiness of giraffes and what we can learn from them as people. So notice how I just randomly came up with that of thin air. So what's the advice? The advice is every day you want to pick five random words. Obviously, giraffe is really hard, but you can do something like coffee. So I made it, I made it really oh. difficult for you. Of course, you're supposed to, right? I'm the guy who's supposed to be setting the example. Anyway, so I hope it did a good job. But anyways, lights, you know, your, you know, your wife arguing with you. It doesn't matter. You pick five words or five sentences and you create presentations. And what this does is it takes you out of your comfort zone Yep. So that when you're actually presenting your tech stack or something you actually know, it's easy at that point. Given your, your background, and it's, you're clearly quite a multi-hyphenate because you move across different areas, which is, is amazing. Given the, the current situation that's going on globally at the moment, what advice would you give to others to help them move forward within their career um, rather than necessarily following just one path? Right. So what I would say for, for career specifically is a couple of things. So one, obviously, you know, as a speech coach, you need to master communication, okay? Whether it's my free videos or, you know, this conversation, learn, because even if online presentations are harder, if you can get better at them, it'll help you ace video interviews on Zoom. And when you go back in person, you'll be much better as a speaker. So I would prioritize that. In terms of finding a job and a career, what I've always found to be effective is always thinking like a vice president. Right. So just to give people context, you know, I started master talk when I was 22 and I started coaching C-level executives when I was 23. Right. So, so why in the world do they trust me with, with their advice? Because of my ability to understand their needs and thinking like them. So whenever you're, you're doing a job, whenever you're applying for something, don't just say, Oh, you know, I'm applying for this company. Let's, let's hope for the best. Think, put your shoes in the vice president for a second. What is she prioritizing right now? What is he thinking about right now? 
what are some of the priorities of their business? What do they care about? And you want to add that knowledge into your questions. When I interviewed at IBM when I was 21, I think I was one of the few people who were hired who only had a bachelor's degree. The reason they hired me was because of my question. So other people would say stuff like, uh, Darren, uh, what's your day-to-day like that you can research online? Whereas I was sitting there as a 21-year-old and I was like, yeah, so talking about the business, uh, how do you go about client generation and building relationships with Fortune 500 clients? And what's the sales cycle looking like for those types of accounts? So I was talking like a CEO, right? And they were just like, uh, yeah, so this is the sales cycle. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So, and I would just like have a conversation with them as yep. if I was at the same level as them. So even if you don't have the job and you're still hunting for one, this allows you to understand the business in a way 99% of candidates don't bother doing. So when you go into the room you're a lot, or the virtual room, you're a lot more confident because you know the business better than anyone else. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, and I guess building on the, uh, the next point I wanted to, to go at, actually, you kind of answered a little bit there yourself. But it'd be interesting to get some, some more take on it. So again, given the, the market we're in at the moment and, and somewhat just the recruitment world as a whole, it's often very hard to get buy-in from uh, that C-suite. Because if, if you're a hiring manager or like an engineering manager or a recruiter, suddenly you need that CEO and that CTO's buy-in as well. So what advice would you give around that? Because obviously that's the level you work at. Right. So, so just so I understand the question, buy-in in terms of you're a manager in a company that wants to get promoted to C-suite or you're someone who's trying to source for a C-suite role? It'd be interesting actually to actually take it from both sides. So I guess from a CTO side, it's always difficult if you're a recruiter to understand what is the, what is the roadmap we're on at the moment. So are we going from 30 people to 70 people? And what does that look like this year? Like, what do we need to hire for in order to do it? it's very tough as a recruiter to really know what you're striving towards if you don't know where that end goal is. Right. And I don't have the perfect answer, but I can definitely give you my educated take on this. So hmm. let's say you're a manager and you're looking to get promoted into a C-level suite. I, I think the first thing you need to look at is does the culture prioritize that? So one thing I always recommend people is don't shoot your own foot before you, you, you apply for a job. So I'll give an example. So one of, one of my friends came up to me and she was like, you know, I have two offers, you know, let's say X company and Y company, yeah. right? And she's like, where, I don't know where to go. What, which one should I pick? They both offer me the same benefits. Maybe there's like a small difference in salary. Where do I go? And I go simple. Let's say she's a woman in this example. So what I would tell her is I would say, count the number of women at the C-level suite or as a senior VP on LinkedIn and whoever has the highest count wins, right? So let's say when she does the comparison, one company, let's say 30% of the, of the, of the senior exec team. So let's say a senior exec would be VP and above, yeah. right? So SVP, VP, and C-suite. Yeah. Let's say it's 30%. But the other company, let's say it's 5%, right? Then it's like the choice is obvious, right? You want to go with the, you want to go with the company 30% because they're developing a lot of their leaders internally. Think about the decision I made to join IBM. The reason I picked IBM, because a lot of these case competitors get multiple job offers was because there's people who looked at me, who worked at the same company for 10 years, who were senior executives of the company, right? So I was like, oh, well, if I stay here for 10, 15 years, the only reason I don't get promoted is just because I suck. And that's exactly what I want. Right. If you get, if you get, if you don't get promoted for any other reason, it means you're in the wrong company. Yep. Right. So, so that's how I look at it from a manager going up to C-suite is you want to first assess, 
do a lot of these people get hired internal? If the answer is no, you need to go somewhere else so you can get into those positions. In terms of hiring for C-suite executives, what I've seen that Google has done really well, and this is just the number one way to recruit, so I'm not adding anything new to the conversation really, is referrals, right? But uh, let me add more layers to why referrals are so important in the the C-level. Since recruiters are usually not familiar with somebody's tech stack or how they actually perform, since a lot of these CTOs don't have the best social skills in the world, right? What you really want to do as a recruiter is you want to have a lot and a lot of conversation and relationship building with your best engineers. That's usually how I go about it. Uh, Like, for example, a lot of the CTOs I work with, like for pitch decks, mostly, not hiring really, but for pitch deck, they always tell me all the time, one of the CTOs I talk to, what he does is he goes to, uh, he goes to hackathons. He participates in them on purpose just to see who's good, right? So he just walks around, looks at some other project and goes, oh, this person's really good. This person's really good. But that CTO also knows the other best CTOs, right? So let's say someone like me who doesn't understand tech stack and let's say I'm a recruiter. I, I, I look at this guy smiling or this girl smiling. Like, oh, this person's a good CTO. And the, the guy you're talking to is like, no, this, this person sucks. Like yeah. they don't know how to manage the team. Right? So you always want to think, you always want to have those constant conversations. So you're sourcing for the right CTO. Because remember the challenge like you mentioned is it's like this two edged sword in the sense of the really good CTOs are very high in demand. Like the CTO of Facebook, Mike, he probably gets offers from all the other tech companies every day. And the people who aren't really good, right? are looking for a job, but aren't probably good fit for your company. So you kind of have to balance the two, right? And the only way to do that, I think effectively, is to continuously have conversations, not just with your C-suite, but also people who are like SVP, VP tech in your company that are really good. So if you're looking at it from a uh, recruitment perspective, but like mid-level recruitment, so if you're looking for those great engineers, what advice would you give to, uh, to people looking at that kind of level? less recruitment, but more, how would you have a conversation with your CTO to go, look, this is what you're trying to achieve. Like how, how are you going to help me with that? Of course, middle management is much easier in my opinion. So the reason is because you can, you can grow a lot of people internally for those roles sure. since it, since the gap is much smaller, like CTO is like, it's really difficult. Most people don't usually obtain that skill set in time. But for middle management, what you want to do is you want to prioritize a culture of learning. And that definitely starts in the top bottom. So if you think about IBM as a company, this doesn't just apply to us. This applies yeah, to they, Google and all. Exactly. Right. So it's not like a right. So so the, what we do, right, which is super simple, is we hire a bunch of entry level positions, like a like a, let's say it's a pyramid, because it's consulting, right? You know, yeah. top end. And then the people who survive the work ethic right or the ones who don't get managed out but the ones who do they get promoted really really quickly so mm-hmm. like my manager right he's a managing consultant so he's so there's a junior senior managing consultant but he's 25 years old right because because yeah. the, the partner the culture is there is like if you're better than the guy who's 40 or the girl who's 40 i don't care i'm gonna promote you but if you don't have that culture in place your top talent is gonna isn't gonna stick long enough to get into metal management they'll just pull They'll just go somewhere else. So I think the best way to hire middle is to is to is to promote from the bottom. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, the, the I've, I've seen I saw a statistic the other day where it was saying that techies stay in companies for two point four years on average. So exactly. it's very hard unless you are an IBM. It's very hard to keep that talent internally. 
Hundred percent. I can even give you some tactics of what we do at the firm. So one of those things, my manager has a mandatory monthly call with me every month to go over my goals. Like it's not even negotiable. So let's say he's working like probably seventy-five hours a week. His priority is a call with me. That's crazy. Okay, that makes not many companies. I was like, why? Even I go. I was like, you don't. We need to have this call. And he's like, no, no, no. We need to have this call. Right. Let's go over your goals, all that stuff. He's always touching base. He's always very honest with me and transparent about the process. Every issue that I've brought up since I started, this is coming from a guy who has no, that much experience, solved like immediately. Because we don't want Brendan to leave. Because Brendan, we've already spent like 100K on this guy, right? Like what if he lose, if he leaves, then we're going to lose. So you want to always have that. I think what most tech companies don't do enough of, not the big ones, but I would say smaller, medium is they don't have enough conversations with their entry-level employees to show them, especially during these times, that they're extremely valuable employees that they don't want to lose. Yeah, and uh, I utterly agree with that. I think that a lot of companies consider that graduate piece to be very easy to find people because there's a lot of graduates out there, let's be honest, especially in this market at the moment, that it's not hard to find a top graduate. But the reality is that, like you say, if you spend, if you bring a graduate in and then you have them for two and a half years, three years, by the time that they have reached that third year, that's the point where you really want them in the company. Because you want them early, but you've trained these people to a certain level. And then suddenly if they leave, they've gone somewhere else with everything you've ever taught them. So I completely what, agree with you. Yeah, like I, I, that's what I never understand about, um, about the, the graduate or junior recruitment space, that they, may not, be, they not be, may not be pulling in huge revenue for you right now, but in reality, in three years' time, you've trained them to the point of them being some of the best people in your company and you're let, willing to let them go without too much, of a, too much of a problem. Right. And we can push on this. We can riff on this a bit more. Like, let's say you, you play that type of culture where you don't invest enough in early end. This is what happens. You overpay for middle management, then, over, then middle management enters your company, and then new graduates who look at your, your company externally don't apply. Yep. They go, I don't, I don't want to work here. Like there's just no future here. Everyone in middle, anyone who's smart will do that. Or right? it was really good. They'll look at middle management. Like nobody started at IBM. I'm not going to work there. Yeah. Like for me, all of my managers, all of them started at IBM. Yeah. Like they, none of them left. Right. So I just said, Oh, this is the company. And no, I, I find the, um, it's interesting what you, you said there. And I, uh, and something you said earlier, actually, you said that when you looked at IBM, you chose them based on, does this person look like me or do, are they like me? Which I think that that is a problem that isn't really solved in, in a lot of areas because let's go extreme here. If, if you come, if you're a female and you're black and you, uh, and you come from an LGBT background, there's very few examples in a lot of companies of people with that background. So you don't apply for that role. So companies need to put a bit more diversity at the forefront of their business. I saw a stat the other day where it was saying about the, um, the diversity on different boards in companies. And I think it was Apple. Apple's diversity is like 17% away from being white male. So if I'm a, if I'm a female going into Apple and I want to reach the highest echelons of that company, I'm probably looking at it and going, I'm probably not going to be able to do it there. Okay, Facebook, there's 40%. I'm going to go there. I agree. Exactly. Exactly. Like, this is what I tell people. And I know this is controversial, but I, I completely abide by this. For me, DNI campaigns, like, don't make sense. Like, who don't look from a, from a candidate's perspective and say, oh, this person promotes diversity. And no, look at the numbers. Just go count. Like, if there is no black women, and I say this to black women directly, like, if you don't have that, if you, then don't bother applying. Don't put your eggs in the right basket because I don't want you to change the world. I just don't, I want you to take the least amount of risk possible so that yeah. you're successful. 
Yeah. And, and I, I think diversity needs to start from somewhere. I, I think what is really missed in diversity is that everyone says that the, um, oh, we're trying to solve diversity by bringing people in and we're trying to bring them in at middle management or senior management. So they don't exist there. Where you really need to solve this is at like STEM level, like university level. I was watching a, um, it's interesting, I was watching Shark Tank yesterday. Um, and uh, for anyone who doesn't know what Shark Tank is, because you listen in the UK, it's Dragon's Den, but a US version of Dragon's Den. Um, and there was a, a couple on that and they were promoting um, essentially like a STEM course but it was a scholarship STEM course where the sharks were going to put money into it. And then they, they help uh, people from uh, female backgrounds. This one was in STEM courses. And that's really where it's going to be solved. It's going to be solved in three to five years when people have gone through university and moved up in companies. It isn't solved by how a lot of companies think they'll solve it by saying, look, we're going to bring in four middle management um, engineering managers because they don't exist in, in a lot of spaces. That's a reason that people struggle to get them. It's not that they're out there and avoiding your company, it's that they don't exist. So build the talent in from a junior level up to where you need them to be. I don't know what well, your opinion would be on that. No, I, I share the same view. Like how, how can you look for someone who's not, who doesn't exist, right? So you wanna, you wanna make those intro, incremental changes. So that as the best leaders get promoted within the company, then the culture starts to shift. Exactly, exactly. Glad we're, we're glad we're on the same lines on that one. So um, I guess given the the current situation, sorry I keep going back to current, but uh, and having having an online presence right now is a must. I think it's pretty obvious. It's something that I've I've tried doing more and more uh, right now, and you, you see a lot more people on LinkedIn and other social media suddenly showing up a lot more than they probably would have done before. So what should companies or businesses be doing in order to help them attract new talent? Uh, and gain a competitive edge in your opinion for me what i would do in this especially now since it's online depends how big the company is if we're talking 100 under 100 employees if i was a recruiter i would get on zoom calls with all of them individually and just ask for referrals right so i know who the top talent is so i don't have to waste my time recruiting like my friend who just who was just interviewed at three different companies right now he's about to get like two three offers he got all of those interviews through referrals Right, because obviously that's just the easiest way of sourcing talent, especially since a lot of the, the methods of meeting somebody in person have gotten cut off. So as a recruiter, you need to leverage the existing resources that you already have in the company. And if you don't have enough conversation, and this is like people at the most junior level, like that's what was very surprising to me. This is true with all the other tech companies too, is the second you start, even if you've only been there a month, they just ask you and they go, what do you think about this candidate? Have you met this person in university? They actually want your opinion, which is very interesting. But I, I think more companies should be that way, right? So that way you get that second and third opinion. You know how to move to, you know how to move people through the interview rounds and who to ultimately give an offer to. So that's what I would do. Yeah, I, I think referrals are so underappreciated because referrals are free. Like yeah. someone's helping you for free. Whereas I think a lot, a lot of recruiters sometimes will make a decision that look, so I've interviewed this person. Let's go get another person on LinkedIn. Let's go get another person off a job board or a hackathon. And in reality, the first question I ask you when you start for the business is who else you know? Who else, who, who else have you worked with before that's great? I'm looking for this role. What's your opinion? You are an expert in this area. I'm an expert in terms of knowing what the talent looks like and what that market insight is. But I'm not an expert in your technology. Who else do you know? And it's a free resource that... For me, is never used. 
Exactly. And, and you also need to think more creatively as well as a recruiter. Like I don't like for example, especially in the technical space, that's why, you know, I think, I think what's going to be interesting in the future is this, this recruiter who actually knows tech, like understands tech stack. Cause that way, what that recruiter is doing, I'm just riffing here. Instead hey. of just going on LinkedIn, could also go on Substack, could also go on Stack Overflow and all these different websites and just see what projects people are working on. And they can assess themselves if the project's any good. And then they just go look at where they work. Because I find we're transitioning a lot from a resume world to an accomplishment world. Like in the sense of like, especially in technical, it's not like, oh, this is what I can code. No, like this is the project that I've done, yep. right? So it's someone who has that competence can go, yeah, this person is like next level. You got to hire this person. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's, that's essentially the fundamentals behind HackJob. In my opinion, resumes are completely broken. How can you make a decision on how many times someone lists a... Uh, a technology on their on their cv that's a completely broken system and in reality like should you be should you be judging someone on the way that they've written a cv because they're not a published author really what you want what you care about is how good is their code and how and projects they've worked on i agree with that point to the ends of the earth that if someone has done an amazing project whether it's whether it's that you use a system like hacker job where it's automatically scoring it so you can see how long someone's gone if you can't read the code. But I also kind of agree with what you're saying, where if I'm a tech recruiter, I'm probably interested in at least being able to read some code, like understand what is happening in the back end of the system. Because it's all well and good being able to read that someone has used um, Java 8 and then they've used React on the front end and then microservices or they've been involved in microservices architecture. But if you don't know what any of those words mean and how they fit together, like how can you properly judge someone? Absolutely. So I always find it baffling that in if someone says microservices and then you find someone that's got Spring Boot, the majority of the reason you use Spring Boot is from microservices. So why wouldn't you understand the two, the correlation between the two? And that's what I think is one of the most broken things with recruitment right now that people don't understand the correlation between one skill and another. No, I absolutely agree with that. Is, is the more creatively you can think, the better it'll be. But one thing I will say now is we, we live in a market now that's, that's, that's dominated by the employer ever since COVID hit. So you definitely have an advantage as a recruiter that you, did, that you literally did not have eight months ago. No. Right. I don't think that will be an advantage that people have for very long. Companies should be taking advantage of it if you can right now. I get that there's a lot of companies that are massively hit by this. If you're... Um, if you're British Airways or if you're American Airways, like you can't do anything right now because no planes are really moving around. Exactly. So you are heavily hit by it. But if you're an e-commerce business, this is probably the perfect moment to be hiring because everyone is sat at home. The amount of things I've bought on the internet while this has been going on, just I'm a bit bored. So my e-commerce site, I would assume if your marketing is good, it's gone through the roof. So why would you not be backing up the talent you've got already and hiring great people? Because Right now, you do have a little bit of an advantage over what you would have had 12 months ago, but that's not going to be here forever. So there's um, an interesting practice I, I saw or heard of a few weeks ago where it was a company that said that they were going to offer someone less money than they're really worth because right now there's not many options on the market, which is a baffling decision for me because... Like, like you said, eight months ago, that wasn't the case. And probably in eight months, again, that won't be the case. And if I'm, a, if I'm an engineer, I know that my worth is X. So I might join you right now. 
but in 12 months' time, when the market is buoyant again, I'm gone. Right. So. I completely agree. Like, just to give people an idea here, I mean, Airbnb cut their staff by 25%. That means, like, those engineers had offers at Google, Microsoft, like, the whole bat. It's really hard to get into that company, which, which creates an opportunity, if you, if you play it out right, to get really high-class talent and keep them in your company. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so we're all working from home, or most people working from home at the moment. I what's it like in Montreal? I don't know if you, you're still working predominantly at home. Yeah, exactly. Uh, IBM's pretty strict with this. So we're not, we're not, we're, most of us aren't allowed to, to leave our house right? for, for, for travel. I mean, yeah, like yeah, we course. don't, right? unless it's like very like urgent, which is like 1% of situations. Yeah. So yeah, I've been, I've been working at home for the past eight months, and I don't plan on, on leaving my home until next year, I believe. Wow. So you're, you're locked down until next year. For, for, for working travel. Yeah, for travel. I don't mean to sit in your house all day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get very, very bored very, very quick. So what's your work from home routine? Like, how do you work right now? Yeah, absolutely. So, so most of the way that I approach this is, you know, in the morning, I get all my work done for IBM, you mm-hmm. know, just punch it all out, you know, after like podcast shows in between and cool. I get them done. And then immediately what I do is I go straight to personal development. Because now what's interesting for me is, remember, because since we're not commuting anymore, that time gets reinvested back into us. So I read a lot more podcasts, you know, read a lot more books. Uh, I mean, listen to a lot more podcasts, listen to a lot more books. And then through that, uh, I'm able to learn a lot more. So I used to do like two hours a day. Now I do like four or five hours a day. So it's been What are you working on at the moment? So mostly what I'm doing on now is I'm writing my YouTube scripts for the next five years since I just have a lot of time on my hand. So I just finished 2021 last week. So I'm working on 2022 now. And I think, I think the idea and the message for people is we all need to understand that we can't go to a bank and get a loan for 2020. Like people are saying it's canceled. I'm like, no, it's not. Like you can't buy it back. Yeah. So you want to you reinvest that time in a way that makes sense, whether it's listening to more podcasts, whether it's writing YouTube content in advance like me. So that when the events, you know, when this whole thing's over and I'm flying again and I'm meeting clients again, I don't need to think about my content until I'm like 30 or something. Right, so it's about taking advantage of the times. Nice. And what, what do you think the world will look like post-COVID? If you had to look to twenty twenty-one from a from a working perspective, like what do you? How do you think the, the market will change? Right. So, so I've noticed a lot of different things. I think I think a good way of summarizing COVID, if it hasn't been already on the show, is it's like it's an accelerator, right, of many things. Yep. So it's an accelerator for our own lives. You know, a lot of us got stopped midway and we have to kind of ask ourselves what, if we, what we're doing is correct. But it's also an accelerator in terms of trends. So if you think about, you know, Shopify stores and all that stuff, things that that trend was supposed to probably happen in 2030 or 2035. Yep. And now it's happening now, telemedicine, and all that stuff. And that's also true from working from home. You know, like a lot of people pre-COVID would fly out for meetings that they didn't need to fly out to, would meet clients to close million dollar deals that they didn't need a handshake for because they already knew them. And now they're realizing that they're able to close these deals without having to move out and to leave. So I think ultimately for me personally, this will just end up being better for the employee, especially women who have kids because now they're, they have, a, I'm sure the conversation were already great with their boss, but now it's just a lot better. Right, because now they can say, "Look, I'm just as productive as I was, literally six months ago. Probably more productive now, right? Because I want to do better with my job. We're in a crisis situation, so I don't need to travel as much. So now, and that's especially going to be true for consulting, right? Because a lot of us, uh, you know, we have to travel. It's just a part of our job, and that's I think that's slowly starting to change. So I'm going to see. I, I'm going to think of it more of a hybrid model. I think we're going to see a world where if one of the team members wants to work from home, 
from time to time, that's going to be a lot more accepted than it used to be. Nice, nice. So I know, for, I know from a, a UK perspective, I haven't talked to a lot of people at IBM, other than when you're consulting, a lot of time you work from home anyway. I don't know if that's the same in Montreal. That, yeah, it, it really depends. But in, in their case, that makes a lot of sense if they're technology consultants. So for me, I do work a lot most of the time at home. Yep. But I also do travel quite a bit. So it, it really depends on the project. But I would say in general, if you could like IBM in general, this is true Deloitte, Accenture, all the other yeah. tech firms. Most of us do travel most of the time. It's just when we're just doing configuration or just tech work. Oh, yeah, we can absolutely do that from home for sure. Makes sense. So we've got to the end of what I wanted to cover on today's podcast. Firstly, thank you so much for appearing. I, I think that it's been really insightful and I know that a lot of people that listen to the podcast will probably want to reach out to you afterwards and ask some questions. So how's the best way to reach out to you? Of course, you know, feel free to message me. I'm not famous or anything. I'm on Instagram at master your talk. So if you have any questions, uh, you know, concerns, complaints, insults, I'm always open to everything. Don't be shy. If you want to check out my YouTube videos and learn all the public speaking tricks that I have, it's master talk in one word. Uh, and as always, for anyone that listens to the podcast and wants to ask me or the team at HackerJob questions, you can email uh, hello at hackerjob.co. And thank you so much again for your time. My pleasure.